Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Monroe Church of Christ Sunday morning Bible study. I'm Derek Glover, the preacher at the Monroe Church of Christ, and it's good to have you with us wherever you're joining us from, uh, and especially our local folks. If you're watching uh, prior to joining us in person, we're glad that you do, you're doing that. Uh, and if you are in the area, we would love to have you with us. Uh, just uh, stop on by here at the Monroe Church of Christ, but we're glad that we have this ability for you to join us all over the world, and we know so many do. In our Sunday morning uh, Bible study, we are considering the letters of John, the, the first, second, and third epistles, as we call them in our canon, of John. We talked a little bit about authorship of, of these letters last week. We are not certain that these were, in fact, written by the Apostle John, whose gospel we looked at in our previous class, but what we are certain of is that they are inspired. We believe that they reveal things about Jesus that are important to us. And we believe at the very least that someone who wrote this, uh, and it, but tradition tells us it was John, that whoever wrote this was at least a contemporary of John that knew of him and knew the things that he taught and even knew his style, and his style comes through in these letters. So uh, the authorship notwithstanding, there is a lot of wisdom here. And last week we looked at chapter 1, and we dealt with God as light, and that if we walk in the light with him, that uh, we have a fellowship with him and with one another. We talked about the difference between walking in the light as in terms of being an indication of perfection, or walking in the light in terms of being exposed before God, letting our deeds be seen uh, before God, and that in darkness we conceal, in darkness we hide, and sin is concealed and hides as well. But in the light, it's exposed, and it's exposed where it can be cleansed by Christ. Uh, and the writer indicates that, that walking in the light does not mean the absence of sin. It means the cure for sin is, is possible in our life. So we move on to chapter 2 this morning. The writer says there in verse 1, my little children, and again, he refers to them as my children, my little children. This is the way this author chooses to describe his audience. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not of ours only, but of those of the whole world. Uh, important things to note here. If you watched our, uh, our worship service last Sunday, and if you haven't, go back and look at it. Okay, It's available wherever you're watching this. Um, you, and, and if you're on our website, there's a link to the archive that'll take you to our YouTube channel where you can go back and see uh, our live stream from last Sunday. We talked about that word, propitiation. It means a substitute payment. It means that a, a, a payment is made for a debt that is not owed by the one making the payment, uh, a satisfaction of a debt uh, or, or something to, to take the place that we should be taking. We talked a lot about that word last week, and here it is in this, uh, in this letter. It's only found in a couple of places in Scripture, uh, and, and here we have it. As this author talks about sin, the nature of sin, and the nature of the propitiation, he says, I'm writing this so that you won't sin. The ideal here is that you read these things and you understand to walk in the light. Although it doesn't mean to live a perfect life, it does mean to live a life before God and with a mind toward being before God. Now, what does that mean? It means we'll mess up and it means there will be sin. But it also means that as we allow ourselves to be transformed, sin becomes less and less a part of our life 
because we're in the light and sin cannot exist there. So he says, I'm writing this so that you won't sin. But he doesn't say that if you do, you've completely messed it up and you've lost your chance. No, he leaves open the possibility that sin's going to exist. And he says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. An advocate would be like a defense attorney. That's, that would be the word we would use today, an advocate. Someone to speak on our behalf, someone to stand for us, someone to give us standing before the Father. We have this advocate, someone who speaks on our behalf. And who is that advocate? The author says, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, why is he our advocate? Well, that goes to verse 2. He himself is the propitiation, is the substitute, is the payment, is the recompense, the remedy for our sin. He's the propitiation for our sins, and not only ours, but also those of the whole world. This author is opening up and broadening the concept of salvation to include everyone. By this, verse 3, we know that we have come, excuse me, by this we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Okay, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. So the author there is tying the obedience to the knowing him. If you follow after what Jesus has taught, if you follow after the things that he showed you to do, you have a relationship with him and you've come to know him. So there is something about our transformation in Christ that leads us to a life of obedience, that calls us to a life of obedience. And by doing so, this relationship exists and deepens with Christ and he is our advocate. We know him if we keep his commandments. That means we follow in faith. Now, what were his commandments, by the way? What did Jesus command? Well, uh, he, he taught a lot of things. We think about the Sermon on the Mount. And we think about the ideas of, of not just following the law in terms of not committing murder, but following the law in terms of not being angry with others and not allowing anger to overtake your heart. But at, in all cases, love is what trumps in, in Christ's law, in his commandments. Uh, he says the first commandment and the second commandment all have to do with love. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. These are the first and second, top two, he gives us. So we know that this is what he's asked us to do. And now the author is going to do something very similar to what he did in chapter 1. Remember chapter 1, he says, hey, if you say you're in the light, but, but you're walking in, in, you have darkness, you're not in the light. And you're not being truthful, you're not being honest. So he says, <clears throat> verse 4, the one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. All right, let's, let's break this down a little bit. So again, he, he juxtaposes the actions and the words. If someone says, I'm in the light, but they're not in the light, well, they're a liar. If someone says that they know him, but they don't keep the commandments, then they're not being truthful. This is similar to what James says when he talks about the idea of faith and works. Now, some people look at James and say, well, he's talking about a, a works-based salvation, that uh, faith without works is dead. We have to do something in order to be saved. And they put that up against, say, like Paul in the book of Romans, where he talks about being justified by faith, and they say, aha, a contradiction, so which is it? Those two are not in contradiction at all. Paul talks about being justified by faith. James also talks about being justified by faith, but he points out that faith is something more than just saying, I believe. 
Faith is something more than just mental assent. It's something more than just an acceptance of something being true. It's how you live in response to that. You know, I, I believe that the sun has risen. Uh, I can see it, right? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to act differently because the sun's up. I'm going to live my life, go about my daily tasks. This is when life happens. People begin to interact because it's daytime. When the sun goes down, I believe it's nighttime. And so I'm going to go to bed at some point. You know, we, we act on the things we know to be true. Um, a more accurate way of putting that, a more precise way would be to say that I believe that nighttime will come. I believe the sun will set. So I'm going to prepare myself throughout the day to be ready to go to bed when that time comes or to settle in for the evening when that time comes. I'm going to get things done today because I know nighttime's coming and another day follows it. So we act on the things that we believe. And James, in his letter, simply says that if you're not acting on that which you say you believe, then the question must be asked, do you really believe it? Because true faith does produce and compel action. So it's not that James is, saying, is preaching one gospel and Paul preaching another. Both are unified in their acceptance that we are justified by faith. James is simply pointing out that a true faith will demand action. And there are things that we do in response to that faith that demonstrate that faith and help to deepen and further that faith. It even assists in our evangelism. And we know that this, this writer, John, uh, referred to as John the Evangelist, is very much concerned with the spreading of the gospel. And so he mentions here that uh, whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. That's whoever follows after what Jesus taught and his commands. This is the one who puts action behind their faith. Not works of merit, but works that are, that are born out of a true faith. If you have really come into contact with Jesus Christ, and we believe we do that when we're baptized, if you have really accepted him and, and you've clothed yourself with him, how can you not live differently? So the author here is doing a lot in these first two chapters of, of, of looking at the words we say and the actions we take. And while the actions we take by themselves cannot save us, he is clear that the saving power is in Christ as the propitiation. But that being the case, when we've accepted that by faith, are we not called then to live according to that faith? Uh, I think we might have had a bit of a reactionary um, transition in, in the history of the church and the history of faith when we began to, to look closely at this idea of being justified by faith that uh, we're not saved by works. Okay, we accept that. We're, there's nothing we can do to earn salvation. But does that mean that anything that we hold as being a requirement uh, under Christ, under the law of Christ, is wrong? No, absolutely not. It just means we're not going to get any closer to heaven by doing it. We're, I'm not going to save myself by doing these good works. But what I am going to do is demonstrate my faith and deepen my faith and strengthen my faith in those works. So the works of the law, as we define them as Christians, that is following after what Christ has asked us to do and how he's asked us to live, are not an attempt to earn salvation. They're not a condition of our salvation. They are the response that we have to the sacrifice of Christ and the amazing grace of God. So the writer here says that there are those who will say, I know him, but they don't live like it. Well, that's dishonest. Think of the fig tree. Remember when Jesus encountered that fig tree and he reached in and there was no fruit on it? 
And what did he do? He cursed it and it withered. I've always found that fascinating. I always found that interesting. And then I thought about what might Jesus be saying by such a thing. And I want you to consider this. That tree, from its bark to its leaves to its shape, everything about it said that it was a fig tree, and yet it did not bear figs. And Christ, I believe, in cursing that fig tree, demonstrated something he also demonstrates in the parables, that that which does not bear fruit is useless. I mean, if an apple tree doesn't have apples on it, is it really an apple tree? If it never bears after its own kind, is it really what it says it is, or is it just a tree? And a Christian that does not produce fruit, whether it's the fruit of good works or the fruit of, of, of the exponential growth of faith through the evangelism of others, if it doesn't produce something, is it really a Christian? That's the question John's asking here. If we say we know him, but we're not living like it, can we really say that we are who we say we are? That which we identify as is that which we will produce. If we are people of faith, we will produce deeper faith and others who accept Jesus Christ by faith as well. <clears throat> so the author here says, don't just say it, live it. He echoes the same things that, that Paul alludes to, but that James fleshes out a little bit better. And here John is saying the same thing, that if you say you've come to know him, <clears throat> excuse me, but you don't keep the commandments, that you're a liar. You have no truth in you. If you truly have faith in Jesus Christ, you will live like it. And uh, he, he says here that uh, whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. Um, that doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect. It means that the love of God has been perfected. And the word perfect, uh, if we go to the original language, the Greek, that this would have been written in, uh, we see that there are similarities between the word we use for perfect and the word we use for complete. Perfection was viewed not as flawlessness, but as a sense of completion, wholeness. That's how they define perfection then, and that's how we need to define it as well. The Bible was written for us, but it was not written to us, so we have to consider the context. It doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. It simply means that the love of God has made you complete. By following after what Jesus teaches in faith, we are made complete. And it's the faith which saves us. By this, we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. If you say you're in Christ, then you should look like Christ. Verse 7, Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. A lot to uncover there. He says, I'm not writing a new commandment. I'm not telling you anything new. This is what you've known from the beginning. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you. So what he's saying is, look, this isn't anything new or groundbreaking. You understand this. You understand that if you truly are following after Christ, you're going to look like Christ. You're going to behave differently. And yet, he's saying, this is hard. And so it is as if I'm giving you a new commandment because you haven't been practicing it. He's, 
he's uh, challenging them to live differently. And what is the, uh, the evidence he gives? What is the point he makes here when it comes to light and darkness? He is saying the one uh, who says he's in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. So how does this author define or give evidence of darkness and light? Well, it's how you treat other people. Uh, we, we would have thought about a hundred different things when it comes to how we live and practicing the proper uh, uh, evidence of our faith. But what does he point out? How well do you love other people? How well do you care for other people? Where is the division among you? Do you seek unity with one another? Because that is light. Division is darkness. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. We talk about light as being revealing and of showing us the way. But those who hate, he who hates his brother is in darkness, walks in darkness, and doesn't know where he's going. So let's go to verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. I'm writing to you because you're saved people. You are Christians. You are faithful believers in Jesus Christ. I am writing uh, to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. Okay, now he's going to break this down. He's going to apply labels to certain segments of people. So I'm writing to you little children because you've been saved for his name's sake or you've been forgiven for his name's sake. And I'm writing to you fathers. Now, do we mean literal fathers of children? No, it, it, he might just be talking about where they are in maturity literally it could be where they are in maturity in their faith i think that's probably more likely you little children you who are kind of new at this i'm writing to you because you've been forgiven your life's been transformed by your faith in jesus those who are more mature in the faith i'm writing to you fathers because you know him uh, you know him who has been from the beginning i'm writing to you young men the maturing the coming of age because you have overcome the evil one I have written to you children because you know the Father. I have written to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you young men because you are strong and the word abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So he kind of repeats himself there and he's saying, I have reason to speak to each of you. I have reason to share with each of you, whether you are new in faith, whether you are growing in faith, or whether you are mature in faith. There is always a reason to deepen your faith. There's always a reason to remind yourself to walk in the light. Let your actions show what your heart believes. Verse 15. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does not, who, who does the will of God lives forever. Now, this is interesting uh, for a few reasons. So he, he says, hey, don't get tangled up in the world. Don't get caught up in the world. There's a lot of things in this life that can busy our minds and draw us away from the work we have to do in loving one another and in following after Christ. And he says, don't fall in love with this world. Now, I spent two weeks uh, at Wisconsin Christian Youth Camp recently. I love being out there. I love being in nature. I got some of the most beautiful pictures. Uh, we had beautiful rainstorms come through the hills up there. The water got really high in the creek and was flowing. And, and we took hikes and we, uh, we did all kinds of things outside. It was just gorgeous. I love being up there in the fresh air. And even with the mosquitoes, I enjoy it very much. 
and I see the world around me and I think to myself, wow, how fortunate we are, how blessed we are. Thank you, God, for making this beautiful world for us to live in, this nice place for us to have and to explore and to, to, to spend time in for a while. But John says, don't fall in love with the world. There are some good things about it. There's some nice things here. There's some fun things here. But don't fall in love with it. If you love the world, you can't love God. Because the things of this world, this lust of the flesh and lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, he kind of generally categorizes all sin right there. But that's not from God, he says. That's from the world. That's the creation of man. That's the, way, that's the constructs that we have uh, of what is desirable. The world is passing away. Now, this is the point he makes. Hey, you can fall in love with the world or you can fall in love with God. But understand this. What's in this world, it's not forever. It's going to pass away. It's going to be destroyed. It's going to end. What's in this world is going to end. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Now, I do want to point something out here uh, because this is, this is interesting. And I, I saw a friend on, on Facebook recently uh, post about this um, because they had heard of this um, point of view and it's been around for a long time and it's been argued back and forth but it has to do with the nature of hell uh, and whether it's eternal or not and that's an interesting study and I, I encourage you to to do some reading on it and studying scripture but I will point this out to you whatever it is you believe about it uh, and, and by the way for my for my money for what it's worth um, I have I have certain views on you know, whether hell is eternal or that kind of thing. But at the end of the day, I think we can all agree that's not where we want to go. We want to go be with the Father. And I think God wants us to be with him because that's where we want to be, not just because we want to avoid hellfire. So I think he's built for us a, a kingdom and a paradise that we can look forward to and long for by our faith in Jesus Christ. And, and we don't want, even want to have to worry about what would happen if we didn't have that. It's available, uh, the, 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 the sanctifying power of Christ's blood, it's available to us, so grab hold of it. And then you don't have to worry about those little theological questions about the eternity of hell. But I will point this out. Whether or not hell is eternal, I do know this, heaven is. And every time we see eternal life mentioned in Scripture, it is always in reference to the paradise. We do not see eternal life being referenced in terms of torment. Now we see things like a fire that is always, you know, that still burns or, or something like that. Um, uh, but it doesn't indicate that it's eternal in nature. So that's, that's for whatever it's worth. What does say that eternity is, is the paradise. Those who are in Christ have eternal life. There's a lot of debate about what that means about the other side of the coin, but we won't go into that right now. That could be a, a different class perhaps. Um, but as far as heaven goes, we know that that's forever. And we know that if you want to live forever, you got to be in Christ. And in here, the author points that out. The one who does the will of God lives forever. They're immortal. They have eternal life. It's the one who chases after the world that's going to perish with the world and be destroyed. A few more minutes here, verse 18. Children, in the last, in, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming... Even now, many antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. Now, 
I don't want to get too apocalyptic here because we can easily slide into that. And I know we hear all the different interpretations of this kind of thing about, oh, the end of the world is near, a sign of the end times. Look, we're, we've always been in the end times. And the reason we've always been in the end times is because this is temporary. Now, did some early Christians think that Jesus was coming right back? Yeah. Yeah, in the early, in the early days, in those first 100, 200 years, they really thought it was any day now. That's why some of the, the early church writings were left unfinished. Um, you, when you read the Gospel of John, you read the Gospel of Mark, they didn't really finish their Gospels. Other people perhaps filled in the gaps uh, because they left it open-ended for Jesus to return and complete the story. Well, he hasn't yet, but we know he will. And so in our concept of time, it's been a long, long time. In our concept of time, we look at these things in Revelation and other parts of Scripture that talk about the end times, and we say, oh, my goodness, and we try to apply it literally and say, well, it's coming, and we're, you know, this is the, the last days. We've always been in the last days. Okay, Something as temporary in the grand scheme as this earth has always been in its last days because it's not going to last forever. I, I, I'm, I'm dying I mean, if you think about my life, now I'm, I'll be 35 in a couple weeks, and, and I'm thankful I've made it to 35, and I hope to live a long time. But in essence, I'm dying. I've always been dying. We're all dying just at different paces because our life is temporary. We're not meant to live forever in this body. So we can look at the world in the same way. This world has always been coming to an end. We've always been in the last days. It just depends on how you define it. If you look at it with an eternal perspective... We're certainly in the last days. So don't get too caught up in the weeds. And we're going to do a study in Revelation, uh, probably in the fall, as we close out 2021. We're going to study Revelation. We're going to look at some of those things. Don't get too hung up on trying to make something literal uh, or try to, to discern what the last days are. Who is the Antichrist? Antichrist is a generic term, particularly how this author is using it. Um, these are people that preached another gospel. These are people that tried to convince others that Jesus wasn't the Son of God, to question his divinity, to push back against his good news, and to offer a different solution to the problem of sin. And he's saying all these false teachers, all these people that are destroying and tearing down the gospel, they've been around and they continue to come around, and that's how we know we're near the end, because Jesus isn't going to let that stand. He's going to come back and claim his. And whenever that is, as we define it, it might be a long time from now. But as God defines it in eternity, the last days are upon us. Absolutely, and they have been for some time. Verse uh, 19, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so, it would, so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. These were apparently some folks that were a part of their group that claimed Christ, but then went off on their own and spun off into their own teaching against Christ or diminishing Christ in some way. Verse 20. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? There's the indication here. This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father and, and the one who confesses the Son has the Father also. So John here, uh, or this author, 
defines this term antichrist. It's the one that denies Jesus, that denies his deity, that denies his relationship with the Father. And then he goes back, and whether this is the Apostle John or someone else speaking in his style, he does a fantastic job of sticking to the message and sticking to the theme that the Apostle John gave us in his gospel. And that is that transitive property of our relationship with one another and with Christ and with the Father. And it all flows through Jesus. If we know Christ, then we know the Father. If we love Christ, then we love the Father. If we love one another, we show the love of Christ and we have the love of the Father. You see, it all connects. It all works together. And he reiterates that here. Whoever denies the Son, verse 23, does not have the Father, and the one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you which you have heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you will also abide in the Son and in the Father. This is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. And we return to that idea, eternal life. That's the promise. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it is taught to you, uh, you abide in him. Now little children abide in him, so that when he appears you may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Righteousness is not an attempt. Our acts of righteousness are not an attempt to get closer to him. He's already brought us close by his death. Now, our acts of righteousness are an evidence that we are close to him. Think of it this way. Um, I have four children. All of them, to some degree, look a little bit like me, some more than others. Um, our, our third child in the, in the age stratification, Oliver, looks a lot like me. And you can look at pictures of him and pictures of me as, at that age, and we are pretty close to, to twins. Uh, my oldest son, Thomas, looks a little bit like me sometimes and, and has certain personality traits like me. My daughter has many features like me. Um, my children don't act like me or try to look like me so that they can be my children. They act like me and they kind of look like me because they are my children. And the author here is saying the same thing. Uh, when you see someone who is living righteously, that tells you that they're in Christ. That's the evidence of their parenthood. That's the evidence of their parentage. That's the evidence of their relationship with the Father through the Son. The evidence of their spiritual DNA. It is not righteousness and, and acts of righteousness and the pursuit of obedience it is not an attempt to get ourselves into the family. It's the evidence that we are a part of the family. Now, there seems to be a theme emerging here in his encouragement in these first two chapters. He's, he's saying, hey, I know you guys know this, but I need to tell you this anyway. I know you guys are, are understand this and believe it. He, he kind of reiterates, I'm not telling you this because you're ignorant. I'm not telling you this because you don't know. I'm not telling you anything new. But what I'm trying to do, the author says, is to remind you. To remind you to look at the evidence of your actions and of the actions of others and determine what it tells you. Later on in chapter 4, he's going to talk about testing the spirits. He's going to talk about discernment. 
of the messages you hear. And this is very important because there are a lot of voices in the world. And today, more than ever, those voices are highly amplified through our 24-hour news cycle and our social media and our digital connections to one another. We hear voices so often and so many of them telling us so many different things. This was the problem that this author was addressing in this audience. There were some among them, believers, who had left the faith to pursue personal gain by teaching a different gospel. He refers to them as antichrists. They were people who, who eventually evolved into denying the divinity of Christ and teaching something different and leading people astray. So this author writes to say, hey, look at the actions. Look at the behavior. Faith sanctifies you. The propitiation of Jesus Christ saves you. Your faith justifies you, but how you live in response to that faith is, is both pleasing to God, deepening and strengthening that relationship, but it's also evidence. It's the fruit we bear. Look at the evidence. If you say that you're faithful and, and you love him, but you don't live like it, then you're not faithful. And if someone else tells you something, but they're not living according to that faith, then you need to ignore them. You need to move on. Because it is how we live, it is the obedience that we, that we stand in uh, that is the evidence of our relationship. Not the earning of the relationship, but the evidence of the relationship. And he's saying, I want you to keep doing that. Remember what you were taught and abide in that. Stand strong in it. That way you will remain faithful and you will continue to live as faithful people. And we're going to continue that on in chapter 3. We'll do that next week. Uh, coming up in about 20, 25 minutes, we're going to be uh, having our Sunday morning worship service here, and we hope you'll join us for that. Take care and have a good rest of your week.